if you're coming from that perspective of falling in love, there's a certain giving of yourself that it's really hard to let go. So, like, he has all these women doing all these things for him. He doesn't have to do jack shit except get a nut off. But he's actually being invested in this person. And I think that relationship is actually scary to him. I think that's why he left. People need to nut up and just follow their hearts. For him, literally. (laughs) Well, I mean, it would be bad if he did it now because she's super dead. I mean, we don't shame against the necros. We absolutely do. <laughs> I don't know if this is going to make that so. <laughs> that should be the intro. We don't shame Necro. We absolutely do. to resurrect the uh, the oldie but goodie kind of problematic medium problematic or hella problematic for for so young Sophia. i think only for one of them maybe which one are you thinking about because i know i know the one but i think it may be another possible uh i was i would make the argument for lost in translation okay because there was um, a moment where my dad looked at me and went i think think this is racist oh no it's not i think it's racist when bill murray is fo- and scarlett joe is fucking with the r and the l's like that's mega racist like but also like the only people who were presented as like nice and cool are white people in fucking japan yeah exactly like that's that's is that, kinda... that that's the one you're thinking right well no that's that's part of it like that's that's definitely a part of it um because yeah like it's they definitely live on the outskirts of young uh, Japanese culture. And like I told you, the guy that founded Bape, who, um, who's like, as far as like streetwear is concerned, like uh, Nigo, he's like super popular. Like if you, if a person is like a fan of like Pharrell and NERD and uh, Billionaire Boys Club, like clothing, like, they know Bape. Like if it, if any person is like a rap fan, they know Bape. Like it's like it's like hand in hand almost. And he like made an appearance in. Um, it's actually funny getting better. T- watching old movies with better TVs is really funny because I caught him, and I watched this movie at least like a half dozen times. Like at least I would say maybe about even ten times before this last weekend but he was just there just chilling like as an extra and i saw like bait pieces like throughout the movie and i saw i was reading a little bit about sofia coppola and she studied well not she's like lived in tokyo for like a while so for her to get integrated in sort of like the tokyo culture yeah put that into a movie it, it kind of makes a lot of sense especially I mean, I think... for that being her first written movie my hope is that she was trying to make a commentary on like the american tourist 
Like even yeah. even the like Yale student is like making fun of like the way people talk. And not only is she a Yale student, she's a philosophy student. And philosophy, like one of the, a lot of the central principles of philosophy are like don't judge people and stop being an asshole. Maybe. Yeah. So the fact that she's like really laying it on pretty thick is. Well, you know, it's actually he's laying it on really thick. There's actually a point where she's in bed with Bill and she asked, why do they change the R and the L's? You could actually, in all honesty, there's something that is innately, there's things that we innately think that we don't say out loud. Mm-hmm. And we don't say them out loud for a reason, whether it be fringing on the realms of racist or just rude. And so, I mean, to be way honest, like that, that kind of fringes on that boundary. So if a if a Japanese or an Asian person tells me that's racist, then that's what it is. Um, so at 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 the least, it's rude. At the most, it's racist. Got my foot banged up. And... Wanna see it? Yeah. How do you say no? Oh my gosh. I know. That's. How, when did you do this? I did it the other day. It hurts, you know. Didn't you feel any pain? You. Yeah, it really hurt. It was. Yeah, that toe is almost dead. <laughs> I think I got to take you to a doctor. You can't uh, just put that back in the shoe. No, we don't think so. Well, you either go to a doctor or you leave it here. <laughs> He's smiling. You like that idea? See, they love black toe over in this country. <laughs> you got a sharp knife? <laughs> Gotta be, you know, this country. Somebody's got to prefer black toe. Uh, black toe. Or we should probably hang around until someone orders it. Hey, what's with the straight face? So there's things that you kind of think maybe it's sort of uncouth, but I think the act of her saying it, you know, it can go either way, honestly. But Bill Murray, like he, he like fucks with the accent a couple of times, and that's for, and that's definitely uh, very kind of gross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I in my mind, I I can't tell if it's meant to be like a commentary on just like that generation or not, because I don't think she has seems to have enough of a vested stake in that. Like, it would be one thing if it it was felt deliberate, and I don't know if it's just because she wrote so well or what, but like it kind of just feels like Bill Murray started doing that, and they were like, keep the cameras going. I don't know if I can, like, vibe with it unless it's trying to say something. I and mean, I don't know that it succeeds. I mean, it's it's doing... I mean, it's doing kind of multiple things. Like, it is doing commentary on what it's like to be a foreigner in an unfamiliar land. So... When you're in places that you're unfamiliar with, there's a natural sort of questioning of, you know, what is this culture? Why do these people do these things in this way? And also it's sort of another function of what white racism is. When white mm-hmm. people go to places that are not of their own, and then if they question it, it's a it's a real sort of thin line between having a genuine questioning about something and then making fun of it. So for when Bill Murray is doing the rolling of the R's and L's back to Asian people, that's him making fun 
that right. they have a way of pronouncing particular words. So that is racist, and that is racism. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it's not burning crosses on lawns and anything like that, but there is a way of social sort of uh, microaggressions that yes. um, that bleed out. And so, and this is a time, 2006, where even the word microaggression, like that's not a thing in the forefront of people's minds. And so I do think that if this is like sort of a differently written sort of project in 2020, um, like a comedian may not necessarily sort of riff in that sort of way because they know the consequences of that. Or maybe they don't and they put it in the movie and then the movie gets quote unquote canceled. Mm-hmm. Uh, but back then, I think it's so subtle that with Bill ripping on it and then ScarJo sort of playing off of it every now and then in their minds and Sophia's mind, I think she she's kind of using it as both. Like she's just using it. This is the American experience being in an Asian country. And this is an old white man experience being in a young youth country that's in Asia. So it, it kind of plays on those different sort of levels. Um, and actually, and I was thinking of that for Lost in Translation, but another another quote-unquote uh, thing that could be canceled about it is ScarJo's age in the movie. So I never knew this until like just now. And I watched this movie, like I said, about 10 or so times before. I never knew like she was 17 years old doing this movie. <laughs> and you guys can't see her eyes, but Kat's eyes just kind of lit up. So she I... filmed... Hang on. Can we put in, like, a ding whenever I take a drink about something problematic? Because, like, I feel like there might be a couple in this episode. <laughs> like a chime. Uh, yeah, we can definitely do something like that. But Okay, yes. in which case, ding. <laughs> uh, yeah, so ScarJo... Scarjo was two months away from turning eighteen. Ding. Oh no, she she <laughs> she her birthday's in November, and they they started in early September and ended late September. I think it only took a month to shoot the film. That's not but she was like a, to me. But she was a month away from turning eighteen. So Ding. it's kind of, it's really hella problematic when the opening scene is seeing see-through panties of a 17-year-old. That is... <laughs> that is not what you want. <laughs> no, that's not what I want at all. Was Kirsten Dunst busy? Like, what? Like it's... Or also a child? Probably also a child, but, like, whatever. Yeah, Kirsten actually would have been... Um, in 2002, she would have been 20, so, which actually is the oh, perfect so she was age. Too old. I mean, because this girl, she's supposed to be like 22 ish. Yeah. They don't say her age, but yeah, it's supposed to be around that because she graduated college. But what were we going to say? She graduated college in like May. Yeah. That's what they said. And now it's, you know, like I think sometime pretty quickly after that. Yeah. Okay. But aesthetically speaking, it makes Tokyo look like heaven. Yeah. One of the lines I wrote is the way the husband says go to sleep is such neurotypical bullshit. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah i feel like we're also not talking about the problematic nature of the rape fantasy scene oh that's what i'm saying like this <laughs> this movie this movie is resurrecting the the problematic game like that scene in itself almost single-handedly i would say 
like it's it's I think the act itself is not necessarily problematic. However, the commentary that old old men like Japanese prostitutes to or well I let me before I get you know fucked up old Japanese sex workers when they date Johns the Johns have a default for rape or don't don't tear my stockings off or shit like that like well yeah but they will I feel that it is important for to translate for our old white male listeners I'm, I'm sure there are none but um that domination thing that you say you're into is usually actually a rape or abuse fantasy. <laughs> I don't think people are ready for that conversation. <laughs> like, I know you think you're like, oh, I'm so like, I'm so alpha that like, I'm in charge of everything. I'm a man of singular taste, blah, blah, blah. Come at me with that Christian Grey bullshit. Uh, but anyway, it's kind of interesting to me that he doesn't want it though like i don't he it the the rape fantasy is actually kind of assaulting him for for lack of a better term and like i found that very interesting you know the kind of foreignness of culture being abrasive to to what you want and i think a lot of her movies are about this whether it's Marie Antoinette or even that it exists a little bit in The Virgin Suicides. But, like, when they say, like, oh, he's the Johnny Carson of Japan, and, like, that winds up being, like, a game show, but that is culturally maybe still an apt comparison. You know, it's it's very funny. Um, I also, uh, what is it with blonde chicks and ordering vodka tonics? I hate that trope. Um, maybe that was a thing in the mid two thousands. I I don't really know Every honestly. Hot blonde in a movie, either orders a vodka tonic or is subversive because she orders a whiskey. She's not like other girls. <laughs> That's something I've never noticed. But I'll, if you say it's a thing, I, I believe you. <laughs> um, it's actually going back to the Bill Murray thing for the um that like rape fantasy. Like, I do agree with you, and he's, like, so, like, overwhelmed by this sort of culture shock, and then all of a sudden, this woman who, it's not even clear, yeah, he never even called this woman, right? Like, like someone funneled her to him, and then he just sort of, like... He was basically uh, gifted her as, like, thanks, thanks for, uh, for your help, uh... I mean, I know that it's common for Americans to kind of notice and remember the more sexual aspects of a country's personality. And I think that a lot of a lot of Americans do think about like the fact that Japan has panty vending machines, you know, like I think I think that's a lot of the American perception yeah, like it's sort of a sexualization of culture that they have no real uh, history or dialogue with. And it's funny you bring that up because that's something I noticed in Girls. Like the last season of Girls, um, one of the main characters was dating an Asian dude. And 
One in one of the episodes, the night was filled with them going to these random Japanese sex clubs, and mm-hmm. it literally had nothing to do with any sort of plot device or any like. It wasn't like this girl, she's like a heavy sexualized person and she's trying to explore something new about herself. It was literally them bouncing around from sex club to sex club. And it was super fucking awkward. I mean, did she did she like learn anything about herself or not, not a goddamn thing. God the only damn thing, it. The only thing she learned about herself was she didn't like the sex that they were projecting. That's it. <laughs> like that's it. That that maybe sustains an episode. I mean, girls, girls is a way another problematic vehicle that we can return to down the line if we. I so feel choose. like we we occasionally just like take a minute to talk about like one problematic aspect of girls here and there, and just kind of like. Bro, that show fucking yo, that show is so fucking disappointing on a lot of levels, like. Um, did you watch it when it was out or did you ever rewatch it at all? Uh, no, I watched the first like season and change and then I like kind of popped in intermittently and I honestly found that popping in intermittently was fine. Oh, cause like I watched, like I watched every season like while it was on TV. And so that first season of girls really felt like, bro, this is some cool ass, this is some shit that no other network is showing. HBO does it again. They found this like interesting show with these interesting people. And then eventually the show was basically like a commentary on how your mid to late twenties is about kind of vanity and not, and not caring about anybody else other than yourself, which if you want to tell that kind of story, that's not necessarily that big of a deal to tell. But I think, Lena Dunham's commentary on 20s culture it's so shallow that it feels completely not completely wrong but it feels like it doesn't meet all the markers and so it's kind of like so for example so the first season of girls like they went the entire um series without having any meaningful interaction with minorities and so if you're living if you're like a white person living in in New York the thing back then was, how the fuck do you not know anybody that's not white? And so the first episode of season two, she's fucking Childish Gambino. And so it was kind of like a fuck you to people to actually bring up that sort of point. And in the moment, I'm not going to lie, like, whenever she did that, I was kind of like, bro, I'm, it's funny that she kind of had this sort of take because, you know, honestly, like, you can be a white person and not interact with minorities and it's not that big of a stretch, even in New York City. But then every season, like, from that point on, the only people that were minorities were all sort of fil- fulfilling these sorts of, like, what we sort of label as plot devices. Like, they're not meaningful at all. They just really prop up and fuel the main characters. And then once they're used, they're not explored in any way anymore. Oh, and- do you mean the uh, supportive uh, friend of color trope? Yeah, like the magic negro thing. Like especially in the last season, the like the gay white character, he uses this black woman to basically prop him up, give him support to get this uh role that he wants in this play. Once he gets the role, we don't hear fuck all about her at all. She's Dude, only used there to prop up the white guy. Maleficent a Maleficent Mistress of Evil had that so bad. And I was sitting in the theater and I was like 
kind I was shocked that I was watching a big budget movie in 2019 where they used Idris Elba to basically like help Angelina Jolie remember that she was hot and no one should fuck with her and then killed him. Jesus. And I was like, yeah. And I, I still to this day seem to be like one of the few people who's mad about it. <laughs> like it's it may be because I'm one of eight people who saw that movie, but like uh <laughs> I read like one other reviewer and it was from I'm noticing that mostly women seemed to have been commenting on it in any meaningful way. But like is a woman who writes for the Mary Sue and I can't remember her name, but I didn't know we were going to be talking about this, so it's not like I looked it up ahead of time. Uh and I was like Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> Like we we get it. Angelina Jolie is a is a stone fox, and she forgot that she was a stone fox because she let a hot boy rip her wings off, and now she's sad. And yeah. then Idris Elba has to be like, "Hey, girl, you still fine as fuck. You go get your surrogate daughter back from that evil witch lady." She's like, "But I was always the evil witch lady," and he's like, "Nah, you were the chill witch lady. The evil witch lady is actually the queen." Oh no, I got hit by a rock. Goodbye. Like, <laughs> yeah. Also, the like, fact that Idris Elba took a role like that makes me angry. Idris I'm, Elba, you're I, better than that. I mean, the thing is, though, like that's kind of the thing about Hollywood and limiting like minorities, like the roles that minorities have. Like, because we we talk about this thing of like, um, you know, we're we're obviously connecting these dots between these different movies across different times and different movie studios and different vehicles. So we went from a movie to a TV show to another movie. And in all these situations, there's not minorities getting adequate roles because they're kind of like for them to get these roles in these movies, they like, they had to sacrifice something about themselves. Like, like it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a tale as old as time. So it's kind of, you know, it's just sort of, really sure really showing you like how things they say things have changed but not necessarily that they've changed very much um so yeah it's it's wild out here so to get back to lost in translation we have the kind of racism problem yeah we have the rape fantasy problem and we also have the problem that both of them are attempting to cheat on their spouse now listen, I understand that like uh, things are complicated. Yes. Very much so. But the movie doesn't care about that. In fact, it kind of like the husband's a little bit of a shithead, but he like faxes her like eight or ten times, telling her he loves her. And if you listen real careful, he's only gone for like three days. Yeah. <laughs> so the fact that he's like kind of being a good husband and we're supposed to stand up and cheer when she and Bill Murray kiss at the end. You know, the funny thing is like, I think she's actually trying to be as neutral as possible. Like for ScarJo's husband's character, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, he does show signs of like, he is like a, he's trying to make some effort. But if you, if you notice, there's a scene where, like he ran up to the room just to change to go back down to the bar to meet the dunce. He mm-hmm. wasn't going to invite her initially, so like he was obviously but trying to make a plan to be without super, her. Was super cool when she said she'd like to come. Like he was like, yeah. 
so like it's it's it to me it's like oh i'm reconnecting like it it seemed initially that it was very much they were trying to set it up for like oh like they're both in bad marriage and as soon as she was like i would actually like to come he was like oh yeah like please i don't know i feel really weird also like well hold on hold on before you before you move on so like do you feel weird that they are falling potentially falling in love with each other while they're married because like i think even for bill murray like they don't necessarily prop him i was saying i was saying they try to be neutral but i actually i think that's more about scarjo's husband for bill murray like he's not really painted as a good husband nope. like even be- even before he sleeps with a lounge singer like he's basically like in a marriage that he doesn't want to be in so he's trying to make it work with his spouse but for him to fall in love with scarjo like scarjo literally could have been a dude and like he like he probably would have entertained like getting with him just because they miss that companionship yeah so 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 do you have like in my mind I, the scene where they were, like, drinking wine and watching that movie together in the middle of the night. You know, the first time I saw you, you were wearing a tuxedo at the bar. You were very dashing. But the first time I saw you was in the elevator. Really? You don't remember? Did I scowl at you? No. No, you smiled. I did. Yes, it was a complete accident, a freak. I haven't seen it since. Just that one time. I'm like that, but bigger bigger well not that big <laughs> and he touches her feet well yeah um. <laughs> like that's like that's definitely like a uh, Pulp Fiction moment where like <laughs> any any Quentin Tarantino will do why do you have to generalize to Pulp Fiction well no cause everybody be I'm... touching everybody's feet in Quentin Tarantino movies it's a goddamn feet orgy but no I'm thinking specifically of when Hello, Jules is talking to to John Travolta and, and he's like they're specifically saying that, like you know there's do. a kind of That's thing that cool you about. that you know there's but you don't say where you know you don't talk about it but you know it she knows it like for Bill to touch her feet in that sort of way like he was definitely it, <laughs> it was definitely things that were unsaid that he was definitely feeling yeah but at the same time the way that it at least is implied that it resolves. I was kind of like, all right, I'm kind of all right with this. Will they, won't they relationship, but it's really a friendship kind of thing that seems to be existing here. So when it gets to the end and they have that really good hug and I was like, yes. And then it it's a kiss. I was just like, I don't... Is this what we were supposed to be rooting for? Because I don't want this. I think I remember, like like I said, before I found out that she was 17 and Bill Murray was making out with a 17-year-old, before I found out Bill Murray... I mean, hey, that was his job. I don't think that's his fault. (laughs) Again. (laughs) Again. (laughs) I know what I said. That's all we have to question the problematic stuff. But even before that, like, I, for me, I can remember, like, vividly the first few times that I saw the movie. I never really questioned if if it was a con- 
I didn't try to probe to see if it was a companionship that they had with each other or if it was like them falling in love with each other. I think looking back, like, and looking at the movie now, I think, I think it's kind of, I think it was companionship, but at the same time, I feel like each, I think they wanted it, but either one of them because they were married. I feel like they didn't want to broach that because they probably would have fallen in love with each other. Like, cause even in the final scene where they go after the, um, the, the fire alarm goes off and they're going up in the elevator and they're like saying goodbye to each other. I really feel like in that moment, there's so much tension because they're really trying to figure out if the other person wants to take it that step. And so, mm-hmm. because neither one of them commits, that's why they don't do anything. And I do think that's why they kiss at the end because it's like they know that they're never going to see each other again. And if they have fallen in love with each other, at least that's an expression of that love. But then with them leaving and going their separate ways, that's their acknowledgement of we had this beautiful moment in Japan, in Tokyo. That's that's all it was. Now we got to go back to real life. It's like annoying to me, though, because they both like live in L.A. Like, this doesn't have to be it, though. Like... Y'all um, could be friends, and that would be, or, like, not eat friends seems like a strong word, but, like, y'all could, like, see each other. It's not out of the realm of possibility. Um, them being friends? Nah, man. Like, they, like, it was, it's no way, Bill, it's no way they can go back to Bill Murray being however old he is, just having this 22-year-old beautiful college grad friend, like, I don't for his wife like the way that she was coming across on the phone where it felt like you know she didn't even give a shit about the marriage anymore like he was an absentee father an absentee husband um the guy the photographer he's still a, a major role in his wife's life so I don't think even them going back like I can't really foresee that ending happily I think by the time like they get back to Japan Bill Murray is already divorced and so, <laughs> so just in in my mind, the lack of ambition that either of them had to make any commitments, choices, or or even, like, if, to feel their feelings, feel like none of this had to go this way. But what do you mean it by didn't, that, though? It didn't feel like any of them were following their hearts, because we don't really see what their hearts look like. Because they're so guarded or unwilling to communicate that with each other. And like, well, I do think there's something beautiful about the transient love that you fall in love with someone who keeps you company, you know, for a short period of time, whether that's on vacation or even sometimes you fall in love in like small little ways on like a flight or a person you get along with next to you on a train, you know, to me anyway, I was not captivated by this. I was not excited about this. And I didn't really care. I know that sounds really bad, but like part of me was hoping that the husband would come back early to surprise her and find Bill Murray in their bed and have a freak out. So at least then something would happen. I just think you wanted just conflict of some sort. That, that's what it no, sounds like. You can extort like, listen, I wanted some sort of manifestation of the internal conflict besides just long, awkward scenes. 
I mean, that's kind of what uh, Sofia Coppola does best, long and Except awkward Except I didn't have that problem with Marie Antoinette at all, or The Virgin Suicides. I thought that both of those had enough stuff that I was like, yes. And and now it is worth noting that both of those are adaptations of books. And this is a, her original writing. So I, I can't help but wonder... Because she does that well, right? She does those moments of, of conflict that are kind of hidden under a bunch of other shit well. That's pretty much exclusively what Marie Antoinette is about, and that's definitely a lot of what's happening in The Virgin Suicides. But, like, I feel like maybe her knowing that she had a little bit more of a specific destination or an agenda or at least a little bit more of, like, a an outline, no matter how much she chose to use of it, because, like, well, okay. believe, believe it or not, I Want Candy by Bow Wow Wow does not uh, particularly feature in the 700-page biography of Marie Antoinette that I've read. I'm um, sure of that. But you know what it is, though? Like, before we move on to the other movies, I think it's just a simple act of how good of an actress Kirsten Dunst is versus, versus how green ScarJo is like i mean ScarJo's not really green like she's like she did ghost world she did like other movies before this but she she doesn't i think she's kind of an avatar for what it kind of is to be like a young 20s person in this foreign country but at the same time like inversion suicides and marie antoinette there are other fillers there that you have so in marie antoinette like there's this grand decadence and there's this like ridiculously great soundtrack to fuel it and, and there's also suicide, this supporting cast yeah and so and so in virgin suicides like you have like a lot of other things supporting a movie more and than also just a Scar- good soundtrack Joe. yeah other than scholar joe and just bill murray so i just think that for i think for you in particular it doesn't necessarily for me um but as far as like the quietness that's in lost in translation uh for me like I, I think that's actually one of the reasons why I was attracted to the movie when I first saw it. Um, I first saw this movie probably like 2012. Um, and just sort of the stillness of Coppola and uh, Curse, not Curse, not uh, ScarJo, I think a lot of that really kind of does fill in the sort of gray. And that, and this movie is actually a perfect like Tumblr generation movie. Like, like Lost in Translation was like super popular on Tumblr. And a lot of that does go toward the quietness of it. You have to understand that I did actually like this movie. Oh, no, I'm not saying you don't like it. From I think it is aesthetic strong and plot weak. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I could make a similar argument for Marie Antoinette. But I feel like Marie Antoinette had some things it was trying to tell us. And maybe I just missed it because I've only taken one pass at Lost in Translation. But I feel like... Lost in Translation came really close to making a point. I think it, it, I think Sofia Coppola knew exactly what point she was trying to make. And I think somewhere in the writing process, it got a little muddy for me. And like, there are times that I think the quietness works. Like, pretty much every scene where Charlotte goes and does something without her husband or Bill, or any time that she and Bill are together. Because the fact of the matter is, everything is much louder when Bill Murray's alone. Have you noticed that? Because that was the thing I noticed. Their sound mixing was super funky, doesn't seem right. But, like, it was very deliberate. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's what Bill Murray is. Like, he, 
like he is an avatar for being like this beacon of goofiness in a lot of ways um but it's not i think the intimacy in lost in translation i actually i i don't think it's weak at all um i think aesthetically and the plot it's all there um you say you maybe you missed it because you only watched it this one time um i mean that's I'm not going to say yes or no to that, but I think there's things as far as like intimacy and sort of stillness that they build with each other. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's pretty good in the movie. I, of the three movies, like, um, what is, what does this movie have a thesis though? And like, I know not movies don't have to, right? Like I get that that's not a requirement necessarily, but I feel like it's a fair thing to discuss considering that we've dinged like, Rise of Skywalker, for instance, for not having a thesis a lot of times. Like, what what is your... If you had to package this movie's message in, like, one or two sentences... Being alone is hard, but you find special people in your life to help you get along in that and move along. Like, these are and two... sometimes they're 17. Exactly. Um, <laughs> these are two mega vulnerable people who have these different parts of their life they're completely different people in a lot of ways but at the same time like they should they share this human connection of being vulnerable and being alone and they're in this foreign country and they they have this connection completely by random and they kind of build they they build a relationship with each other basically out of nothing so i just think i think i think laws in translation is more about how we connect, people connect in sort of dire straits. I don't want to leave. So don't stay here with me. We'll start a jazz band. I think that's what the movie's ultimately about. And so when they don't fuck and they don't, you know, destroy their marriages over each other, that's very practical. And honestly, I think that's actually, I think that's more closer to reality than not. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. Bill Murray is someone who who will cheat on his wife. Like, he, you know, he fucked the mouth singer or whatever. We saw him. Yeah. But at the same time, like, like he understood the intimacy that he built with ScarJo and I think he knew that would have wrecked his 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 marriage really. Not by him, you know, boning someone because they were obviously after him. He knew the real relationship and the real love he had with ScarJo would have possibly, you know, completely, you know, fucked up his marriage. A marriage that he was trying to saving, even though the marriage was kind of trash. You know, boning with feeling would have ruined the marriage. Yeah, basically. My daddy's podcast is called Hyphenation. It's the world's greatest podcast. Barack Obama proved. On Hyphenation, my daddy talks about all kinds of cool things. And sometimes I'm on the podcast too. Sometimes he has his friend Marcus on. Sometimes he stays up really late and he's tired the next day. But it's worth it. But he loves his podcast and I love his podcast. So I really want you to listen to Hyphenation. So daddy doesn't get he really doesn't get sad, though, because he has me. Oh, wait, please listen to Hyphenation. Thanks, y'all. I 
love the podcast, so please, please, please try to join. But if you know it. Okay, back on the problematic train, Marie Antoinette. <laughs> <laughs> okay, see, I think that this movie actually kind of is trying to unproblematicify Marie a little bit, like as a historical figure. There's only one, actually, um, there's only one scene that's kind of problematic. Um, she's which, which one are you thinking of? She's supposed to be 14 years old, yet we see her naked ass changing. I mean, yeah, but, like, that was a very... That's a historical thing. Like, yeah, that's a problematic thing, but it's also a representation of, like, real history that happened. What are, what are you thinking about as problematic for it? Um, seeing a 14-year-old naked ass and them checking to make sure that she is a virgin? They did that? Yeah, that's why someone immediately squatted down when she got naked in Holy front of her. Fuck. They were checking to make sure her, her hoo-ha hadn't been ruptured. Jesus. Christ. Yeah, well, that's what you did. You sold your daughter into marriage, and they had to make sure her hoo-ha wasn't ruptured. Because, you know, that's how that works. It's funny, like, in the beginning when she's walking in the aisle with people, like, in my mind, I was thinking... Bro, has have the French always been assholes? <laughs> like, like, I thought this was an exquisite uh, portrait of French snobbery. Oh, very, very, ex- <laughs> very big on the snobbery scale. It's uh, rated high on the snobbery front. It very much is. I have it on the background right now. Um, it's so pretty. I think this is a. We were talking about kind of the stillness with Coppola. It's funny, like, I think this, particularly, like, in the beginning part of the movie, it's kind of like boredom decadence. Like, everything visually is just grand. Like, there is literally, like, not a frame of of just nothingness. Like, there's always, like, a bed or a wall or embroidery or hair that's completely on 11, oh, 11 yeah. out of 5. This, this movie is about decadence fatigue. Yeah, it is. But at the um, same time, like you have to like she she starts this movie at fourteen, right? Yeah. Like this whole movie is about her trying to do things her way, being shot down at every opportunity, and then finally saying, "Fine, I'll do it your way, and I'll have an amazing time." Yeah. Fuck you, pay me, basically. <laughs> and like when you know that this started when she was fourteen. That doesn't really make her seem like a bad guy anymore, does it? I never like in all in all honesty, I never felt like she was a she was a negative character. Um I never thought like she was a bad a bad guy. Um obviously there's a lot of historical not necessarily misrememberings, but a lot of things left off of the table of who she was. Um I mean, yeah, but I also think it brought a lot of things to the table that aren't usually super present what do you mean scrap so like uh the the idea that like let let them eat cake is not a thing that she said but like she laughed about it and then kind of commented on it while making fun of kind of the absurdity of it supposedly being a thing i think says a lot about like how we saw her because like 
her big sin was not not caring about her people. Her big sin was being protected and sheltered. That's, you know, the thing that wound up being her undoing. Um, I mean, I think it's, I think with Coppola not really doing anything as far as, like, her being a political player, like, by the time they, like, the French come to kill her, well, like, they come to, like, you know, arrest them in their palace or whatever, I think the viewers kind of left with a sense of they don't fuck with her just because she's a foreigner. And I think Coppola did want to tell a different story other than just the politics, just to show you sort of what her life kind of was beyond that, Mm -hmm. which I don't necessarily have a problem with. The French did, but the French have a problem with a lot of things. But, but she always shows the usefulness of women to people without people ever investing in them as women with stuff. Yeah. You know, and I think that this is, in my mind, is out in full focus here. You know, her, Marie is not sought after because she is the smartest or the prettiest or the most whatever, right? She is sought after because she is the most suitable, I guess. Um but she was never trained for this. She was never, she never grew up assuming she would be queen. I mean, she didn't assume she would marry to the French. So yeah. And so when that time comes and she has to be that she's not ready. She's a little girl who's been stripped of everything that she knows. And in her attempt to kind of make peace with it, she's been called every name under the sun. And why should she care? There's no reason for her to, you know, the, I honestly kind of loved the weird love story. I felt like the movie was trying to push of, of her and Louie. Uh, love story. That's not the right word, but like that (laughs) relationship Because it's pretty obvious that he's incredibly fond of her. Is it? By the end? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, after they have kids. I don't, I mean, by that time, like, she's already fucking the sweet dude, so. I mean, yeah, and how many mistresses do you think he had? It's not an issue when he does it. I mean, it's whenever a man does anything, it's never an issue. (laughs) (laughs) in my mind Um, the fact that he he basically seems to be making an active play to protect her for most of the third act of the film now whether or not that's actually the right choice is a fair question because i don't know that it is but i don't think he would do it if he didn't care about her I think it's like in the beginning of the movie, like I don't think there's anything that they have with each other. Like there's no, no, there's no chemistry. There's not even a real conversation that they share. It isn't until the future when like she's actually bearing children that he does have that sort of protectiveness over her. And but even, like he goes to her music performance, which is bad, and he looks at her like she hung the fucking sun that morning, and like. 
I do think that there is a degree of like once her brother comes and is like what is not eligible here where he kind of takes a second and looks at it and goes oh shit she's hot and that translates into not necessarily a love story but at least a care that exists you know he builds her this house because she is getting palace fatigue whether or not that's how we see love that could be his way of trying to get rid of her but like I do think it comes from a place of care. I think their fondness for each other, whether or not it's romantic or sexual or whatever, is real. Um, I don't see it, honestly. Like, even that palace, like, that was when his dad died. That The the mistress that he had, that was her palace. He kind of gifted it to her. I just like is even when the when her brother came and like that's when they started fucking like and that's when she started having kids. I think that's is just all tied to like her ability to, to mother children. Like I don't think I don't think like they had anything as far as like a real connection. But if that's what you if that's what you interpreted, that's what you interpreted. I mean, um, I think that I, the I interpretation that is there is that this is the the historical understanding, right? Because you often see them presented as a unit in history. The idea is that they were both decadent and idiots, and that's why they died. When the reality is he was overprotective of her, and she didn't care to know any better. And, you know, what really blew up in their face is their inability to communicate with each other. You know, but also there's, I think that is about the best you could hope for in an arranged marriage. Don't you? Uh, I mean, I've never had wealth, so I don't know the parameters of getting married to some to a foreign woman and then having enough clout to bang whoever I wanted. <laughs> like I don't know, I don't know the dealings well, of I that. Well, you could make the argument that you don't need to have that money to do that anymore. Uh, you just need to be popular on Instagram or whatever. Yeah, he was born in 1754. She was born in 1755. They were married in 1770. So he would have been 16 and she would have been 15. I'm not surprised that that's not the most, like, sexy romantic relationship. Because that's, like, you could have an adopted sibling that age. Well, yeah, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying, like, they need to have the greatest love of all time. But it some semblance of connection, like, I think that's needed. Like yeah, like you're you're super your teenager is getting she, an arranged marriage and it's just she's not even tries, a friendship. Though. She yeah, tries though. Like yeah, she tries. Really, she asks about his hobbies a lot, and he kind of eventually gets over his snobbery and deigns to fuck her, and then they're like at least seem to kind of have a working friendship. Yeah, but that's not love. That's just a that's a that's a that's a, a pact that this lady's gonna have my babies and the babies are gonna be kings one day, and that's not real love. But but again, like like you said, like they're they're teenagers getting arranged for marriage and it's not gonna be fucking Bonnie and Clyde. But speaking of uh, anything other than their terrible relationship, the the boinging that's going on halfway through the movie who in your opinion well whenever she was doing the swede did you think that was sort of justifiable 
that's a whole big question because like ah, I don't know. I mean, what because was, this what was he doing? We have no idea. Like in the context of of history is different than in the context of the movie that is presented to us. So, in which context are you asking? I'll talk about this movie where he's just looking like a smoking hot white man. Like that's that's the only context I'm talking about. I mean, because they did fucking like they did have just a fair in real life. Yeah. I'm talking about in this movie, like with her going to the masquerade ball, and, and she then, literally meets Christian Grey. Yeah. Eh. Oh, you don't buy their you don't buy their chemistry oh, I, at all. I super buy it. What I don't buy is like Tom the- Hardy was right there, and she could have had him. Well, that, okay, there is that. But like, I do like that he was like kind of mad. He was he's like the hell I've been right here, and one of her yeah. inmates is like, shut up, bro. Like, saying about you. Oh my God, Hans Axel von Fersen the Younger. That'd get you rubbed up. Who? When was he born? Let's find out. Oh, he's the same age as her. You're obsessed with these people's ages. Listen, I'm really tired of very young woman gets married off to very old king as a trope. I'm very used to men being significantly older than their female counterparts in films. Well, I mean, in Cope, and other this than... is a thing that seems it does matter because it is a relevant part of history. I mean, other than Lost, like that's not a real thing in Coppola's movies, though. Well, these three movies, at least. It's kind of refreshing. I don't know that it feels justified in this. I mean, it does in the idea of, like, decadence and boredom. But, again, Coppola does this thing that she kind of seems to be doing in all of the movies that we've at least covered so far, where no relationship, whether it's romantic or, or merely sexual or what, is not deep enough that it feels like infidelity. I mean, it none is, of, but what do you mean by that? None of the relationships are portrayed as, like meaningful enough that it is surprising that people are cheating so you're basically saying that coppola is not really taking a side on if the cheating is bad or not she just presents it pretty neutrally she she gives no shits i'm pretty sure that the only side that she's on in this movie is is that of the aesthetic i'm pretty sure she's in it for for the aesthetic and the soundtrack and uh two images came to mind while looking at this whole film uh, one is the aesthetic of the Queen music video for the song It's a Hard Life, which is talking about being surrounded by all this decadence and all this beauty and all this shit and still somehow being deeply unhappy. And the other one is the idea uh, of kind of the Rocky Horror Picture Show and uh, this uh, I just wanted to have a good time, which is what Dr. Frankenfurter says shortly before being murdered. So, you know, I think it's it's an interesting dynamic that coppola makes but at the same time i think this movie is more about this movie is trying to make us feel a little bit like marie antoinette where we are just swept up in all of this opulence and all this stuff and all of these options and all of these people and all of these shoes and if we got swept up in this how would a young woman who this is her entire life of course she would does that make sense yeah i think coppola is basically for marie antoinette it is actually pretty much the same concept but it's also in translation where obviously these well in the movie they speak english but uh you have this you have this person come into this foreign land she doesn't know the rules she doesn't know the rules she doesn't know the, the customs and so she's trying to adapt and the only way to really adapt or at least make herself feel better 
is to sort of plunge into this decadence. It's to plunge into the partying and gambling. Then it's eventually it's plunging into a dude's crotch. So, so like I think Coppola is kind of at least in those two movies, she is interested in kind of exploring pulling fish out of water and putting into just unusual sort of circumstances. But also, I don't think that at any point is she is never defined by the the sex that she gives. Can you clarify that a little bit? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so like she obviously has sex with Ferson. She obviously has that weird hyper masculine fantasy about him at one point which i could not stop laughing at because that photoshop filter on his fucking face looked awful but anyway the amount of stock that is put in the the affair that she had as well as the the sexual relationship that she has with her husband doesn't take up enough of the movie for it to feel like it's a conflict like obviously the fact that he will not sleep with her feels like an issue right that's important but that's more because it's a threat to her position than it is like an affront to her as a woman with a beautiful woman i feel that this movie is really trying to make more of a commentary on her expected role than it is like marie antoinette comma sexual figure well no i think that's all i think that's kind of what coppola is like her her commentary on women and what their supposed roles are versus what they actually want like that's in each three of these movies like that's kind of the core of the movie so like in lost like she's supposed like ScarJo is supposed to be this wife that is just sort of stays put and can be on demand for her husband at any moment. And Marie Antoinette is the same thing. Like she's this Austrian pluck made to be this princess, eventually gonna be the queen, just to bear the children. And so she's pressured into only bearing children. She's not pressured into being smart or really being political. She's just pressured into you need to have a son so he can be king. And Virgin Suicides is kind of the same thing where the parents are basically, look, you all the girls, like, you have to be conservative. Like, you have to, you know, be, quote unquote, I guess, ladylike. Uh, you can't listen to rock music or anything like that. Like, mm-hmm. we're going to take the rock music. Um, but obviously, like, in Virgin Suicides, like, these were all girls who were feeling these super complex emotions, but not they're, they're not giving a lane to openly express what they're feeling. And that's why ultimately they take their lives. In in my mind, I guess the thing that I'm kind of thinking about Marie Antoinette is the idea that like she, I think the reason that she is so emotionally removed is that she is so removed from the things that she wants, actually. So like you see when she tries to nurse her first child that they say like, oh no, we have someone for that. Like, don't, don't you worry about it. You don't have to think about it. And she is just told you don't have to think about it so much that she doesn't. There's that moment where, you know, the portrait is hung with the baby in the crib and then another one is immediately brought and hung and the crib is empty. And we never see her have an emotional reaction to a child dying. Yeah. But that is probably because she is held so arm's distance from everything that happened to her that she doesn't even really have the ability to connect with things in a in a way that we would probably consider healthy or normal maybe and i think i think to me that's part of the reason maybe why i feel like i actually buy the connection between the 16th louis the 16th and her is the idea that like he is trying to trying to give her this sheltered opulence in a way and she is willing to put up with the things that she doesn't like about him because of that but at the same time like every time she sees him she seems very pleased 
It just seems like he's not around a lot. And it's another example of a time that she's so removed from everything that she makes do with other things. I mean, yeah, like in this movie, he's more of a political figure than she is. So he's out, you know, discussing funding of the American Revolution. He's out doing, you know, he has the big boy pants on in this movie. And she's someone who, to fill her time, she's having the parties and the gambling and hanging out with friends till dawn. Like, that's kind of her role to, to, to find happiness. And yeah, I do agree. Even though, like I said, I don't buy the relationship, I do buy that she is someone that is trying a lot. Like, she is asking the question to try to spark some kind of conversation. He's oh. not receptive. I buy Marie Antoinette, 15-year-old girl, who is so in love with her husband, but then he is so busy trying to, you know, prepare the the world for him being king and doing, you know, whatever it is that the 15-year-old Dauphine or Dauphin, Dauphin does, you know, that, and she's so busy being the Dauphine that, like, they just don't get to have the marriage, and I totally buy that she is a, a little girl who, in, in kind of a Sansa Stark way, is getting her, her happily ever after, except maybe she isn't. And then when she gets kind of shunted to the side and everyone is saying horrible things about her constantly, that and she doesn't get to see her husband very much because he has to hunt with foreign dignitaries. He has to have all these meetings that, you know what? You know, as they as they said in The Force Awakens, the garbage will do. Uh, and she kind of takes up with the first person that makes her feel even that way a little bit. I don't think that that makes her... All right. Now, obviously, this movie, I think, wants us to feel some sort of affinity for her. So I'm going to say this statement. But, like, hey, everybody. I actually know the history. I'm merely talking about this film. This is a film podcast. This isn't a history podcast. I don't think anything that she does in this movie is a beheadable offense. I mean, yeah, they don't, like, Sophia, like I said, I don't think Sophia is interested in exploring that aspect of who she is. Like, it's, it's, she's not, like, exploring any political motivations of anyone, honestly. Like, even when I talked about funding, the, like, the revolution and losing money, it's all very Cliff notes s terms there's no like real explanation of poor people there's no explanation of austrian french relations like none of that is explored no um so yeah so in this movie if you looked at this movie and this is why the french kind of have a problem with it like if you look at this movie everything beyond her political motivations and political maneuvering 
she's a sympathetic character. And I think that's probably why she wanted to tell this type of story, just so you can sort of find you can find sympathy in any character if you kind of look in different ways of it and i think that's kind of why the french are kind of insulted by it because it doesn't really tell like you know why people wanted to behead her or whatever but for me like i mean i i think that i kind of buy into it like i do feel sympathy for her um in the end scene where she's on the balcony and you know that's kind of like a some like symbolism of her just kind of like you know just kind of like giving herself to the crowd because she sort of knows that the end is there in that moment i do feel something for her and i do feel a sorriness for her so i i think that coppola kind of did achieve that i would agree i i also think that it is worth noting that in every biography of both Louis and Marie that I've met, they have made a point of saying that uh, the former king had bravely met his fate. Some people say that when his head came off, uh, he screamed, but that wouldn't be possible because it severed his spinal cord. So he was like super dead. Uh, But knew that this is what the people wanted. He wrote a blanket pardon for them before he died. And like... He he had no mind to stand in, in the way of the will of the people at, when it comes down to it. And that kind of confounds me a little bit because it shows me that there's a significantly more complex and interesting version of Louis XVI that Jason Schwartzman did not get to play. <laughs> I mean, it's not Louis. It's not the Louis movie. It's where we had to that. Right. But, like, God, give Jason Schwartzman more jobs. He's so cute. Not even in a boing way. Just in a, like, I want to give him a cup of hot chocolate and tell him he's doing a good job. Like, no, yeah. I really don't. He's real short. Um, Don't want no short, short man. I just, nah, I'm good. I want to give him some hot chocolate and tell him he's doing a good job. And then, like, maybe talk about, like, philosophy of acting for a while. Because I bet he's a person who reads up on that. Well, if we've got the problematic counter going, I guess we should probably pivot to the Virgin Suicides and talk about James Woods. It's like sound advice, or whatever. It's like comics, conventions, and cosplay, or whatever. It's like ladies' night, or whatever. It's like wrestling, or whatever. It's like parenting, or whatever. It's like anime, or whatever. It's like spiritual warfare, or whatever. It's like great friends, awesome people, coming around doing what we do best, or whatever. You should watch, listen, and follow, or whatever. It's like a podcast, or whatever. What about James Woods specifically do you feel is problematic? Other than James Woods, but in the movie it's, it's specifically. Most, it's mostly James Woods. Uh, I uh, suggest not going on his Twitter ever. Like, really, don't do it. I mean, which part do we want to talk about? 
I mean, you started with the dad. We can, I mean, we can start uh, there specifically. In about September 2017, Ember Tamblin wrote an open letter to Woods accusing him of inviting her and her friends to Las Vegas when she was 16 uh, and not backing down from his offer. Uh, even made their na- ages clear. Uh, several people have also come forward saying they have a James Woods story from when they were teenagers. Um, well, like like I said, like I'm. I mostly mean not just James Woods the person. Like obviously he's trash, but what well, the the character in the movie though to you was there problematic parts of uh, the character? No, so. I think there were more problematic parts with the with with wifey. Uh, although I could probably make an argument that the way that they show his uh, deteriorating men- deteriorating mental health and kind of play it for laughs was kind of not cute. Kind of building that, building that a little more. So that part where he's talking to the plants. And they were like, your daughters haven't been to class in two weeks. And he's like, oh, have you checked out? Like, it's, I understand that they're kind of trying to get the story out quick at that point. Because they're trying to keep the movie at like 90 minutes and they're running out of time. But the glibness of that, and it may just be because like the story is being narrated by like boys reminiscing on when they were young boys. But, like, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. It kind of seemed like the narrative was trying to paint the husband like an abuse victim as well. Because it seems like he is very much locked in these little boy hobbies. And has these kind of regressive regressive fixations. And we never get to talk about that. The only time we talk about him having any weird anything is that one little sequence. And even then it's kind of played for, like... You know you're talking to the plants, right, son? That That's whole thing kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Like, all he talks about is planes and football and baseball. Yeah, yeah. And the way that he grows to... And now, this could also be a very clever commentary about, like, the culture of, like, the woman has to do everything. And, like, thusly, you know, because the mom has done the lion's share of the parenting and she herself was very repressed. She's trying to push that repression onto her daughters. And that's fine. But his almost obsessiveness with planes and his inability to read social cues made me incredibly nervous. Uh, also, I'll be honest, I, the whole time that uh, Joe, the boy with Down syndrome, was present... In that party scene, I was clenched like a bowstring because I was waiting for them to make a joke out of that. Yeah, uh, and I'm really I, I kind of thought that was going to come to I'm not going to lie. Pleasantly surprised that they didn't. Yeah. But I, I really feel like that was one rewrite away. You know, like in, in the ways that they show him doing the, the coin flip thing, it's, it's pretty inherently harmless. And it's not really like they're laughing at him. Something about it still felt wrong. The boy with Down syndrome, they ask him to sing. So it's like, on one hand, they're trying to get him to willfully like participate in the group. And then when he's finished singing, then they clap. And, and they, they're laughing with him. They're not laughing at him. So there's like, for, for like 99% of that scene... The viewers basically like, yo, they're really about to make, they're really about to show kids making fun of kids with Down syndrome. And I mean, in all honesty, that's that's an honest thing that has happened. So exploring that, it's not necessarily out of the ordinary, but it's like I really don't want to watch that happen. 
And then when they don't make fun of him and they, they're laughing with him and they're clapping for him, it's like relief, but it's no joy. It's like, wow, okay, good. They did make fun of him. Relief but no joy is kind of how I would describe most of this movie, frankly. Yeah, yeah. Trip Fontaine doesn't do anything horrible. And frankly, he's kind of built up like he's going to be the worst thing ever. And and all he does is, like, do a dumb teenage boy thing, which is bad. And, like, I'm pretty sure I'm the president of Sofia Coppola Thinks Men Are Trash Club. But he doesn't... It's kind of built up like he's really going to, like... I don't want to say it. Um, I never got that vibe, honestly. I... I never thought it would be a situation where he would be someone that is kind of that aggressive. Well, when the first line is about how the moms in the town want to boink him. I just think that people wanted to fuck him. I I did not interpret that as him being like a sexual, sexually aggressive. But again, like that, I think that's that may be just a perspective of, of me being a man and you being a woman. Like from my perspective, I thought it was like a clear alley you for like, He's going to get his heart broken by this girl. In my mind, the idea, I, I guess, and this is going to sound like kind of bad, but bear with me. I think I was waiting this whole movie for like one thing to happen that was going to unravel all of these girls' senses of of things. I and think- because of, you know, it obviously wound up being like the mother and that dynamic but I assumed that it was going to be something more along the lines of something bad happened to Lux on top of everything else that's already just happened to the family. Because, like, that social isolation where one of them was like, I felt bad when she died or he died. And they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe I just said that in front of someone who, like, actually knows what grief is. I was expecting that Lux finally found, like, she felt someone who understood her and didn't treat her any differently and, like, blah, 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 blah right? And then something bad happens with them, whether or not it's, you know, the 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 rape thing or if it's just something gross. And like what he did was icky, but like it wasn't. I've known high school couples that have stayed together through worse shit than that. Um, I think that's kind of and, a brilliant. I think that's the brilliance of the movie where it kind of subverts that sort of expectation where, I mean, ultimately, the reason they they all kill themselves, it's because their little sister killed herself. But in the movie, sort of crescendoing to that, and yeah, there's no, and I think it's actually, a, I think it's a pretty good commentary on kind of how people respond to to suicide. Like it's, it doesn't have to be like a, it doesn't have to be like this monumental other event that kind of triggers everything else after that. It's kind of like just a snowball of events where it's these little things that keep happening. And yeah, I, again, I, I wasn't waiting for him to do this sort of horrible thing to her. In actuality, I'll be frank, like throughout the entire movie, I was actually just not believing that they were going to do it. Like, even though the, the voiceovers were constantly saying like this thing happened and we're trying to piece this together. Why it happened. In my mind, and I think even that comes to I was doing what you were doing. I was waiting for that one moment to be like, fuck, this is it. And that that's what caused it. But then when it wasn't, and then you remember the, the entire the entirety of the movie, then it's like, wow, all this shit built up to this thing. And the, and the guys exploring it, they're trying to do what we're doing. They're trying to look mm-hmm. at this one big puzzle piece that caused it. But in actuality, it was the entire puzzle. 
Everyone dates the demise of our neighborhood from the suicides of the Lisbon girls. People saw their clairvoyance in the wiped out elms, the harsh sunlight, and the continuing decline of our auto industry. Even then, as teenagers, we tried to put the pieces together. We still can't. Now, whenever we run into each other at business lunches or cocktail parties, we find ourselves in the corner going over the evidence one more time. All to understand those five girls. But after all these years, we can't get out of our minds. Yeah. I mean, I think that it... I appreciated that it subverted expectations by not painting it in that way. Because, like... That's a whole other can of worms, right? Because my, my brain immediately snapped to, oh, the girl is going to try and tell the parents that a bad thing happened. The parents aren't going to understand or still think it was her fault. Uh, and basically yeah. all of the girls are going to realize that, oh, my parents are only there for me if nothing bad ever happens. And yeah. thusly, you know, I'm going to end, 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 end it. Um, maybe my sister had the right idea. God, that sounds so cavalier, and I don't mean it to, but, like, this movie in in 95 minutes less, a little, because of credits, is very, it makes very quick work of this issue in a way that I actually kind of really appreciated. Because you felt the claustrophobia of the, like, oh, I didn't mean to, or, oh, you don't have to be nice to me just because my sister died. Like, that's a very real feeling. Yeah. And I feel like it's one that we don't cover a lot in in movies. Yeah. And this idea that Lux started to like Trip because Trip Fontaine treated her as Lux. Also, I'm sorry, Trip Fontaine just has one of those names. Like, you have to say it the whole thing every time, uh, in my <laughs> opinion. So, sorry. Uh, but, like, he sees her as, like, Lux, not, you know, Lux, what's their last name? Um I don't know. It doesn't matter. Lux, whatever <laughs> their last name is, you know, whose sister died. I think that's ultimately what ends up kind of impressing her. Yeah. I think, I think this movie is, I think it's subtle in a way that it, it tells you sort of relationship between girls and boys where it doesn't. You don't necessarily need to be beat, beaten over the head, and I do think when you say they make sort of quick work of it, I think that it doesn't necessarily need to be extrapolated to its atoms. Like mm-hmm. you can have like you have these group of boys who don't know shit about girls. They find this one journal, and in this 90 second scene, they learn and they tell you specifically. Yeah, we didn't know shit about girls until we got this very private document and we kind of saw the lot we kind of saw life through their eyes and that educated us. The trees like lungs filling with air. My sister, the mean one, pulling my hair. And so we started to learn about their lives. Coming to hold collective memories of times we hadn't experienced, we felt the imprisonment of being a girl. The way it made your mind active and dreamy and how you ended up knowing what colors went together. We knew that the girls were really women in disguise, that they understood love and even death, and that our job was merely to create the noise that seemed to fascinate them. We knew that they knew everything about us, 
and that we couldn't fathom them at all. Yeah. Um, I, I also see- loved the whole line about them being women in disguise. Yeah. Because, like, that's a very teenage boy thing. The idea of thinking that the, the girls have it more together. Yeah. Because I remember... Like, my my high school boyfriend, who I hope to God does not listen to this podcast, but if he does, hi, Chris, I hope you're doing well in California, said to me at one point, like, I don't have my shit together when you first asked me out. And I said, no, it's because I knew you had your shit together and I didn't want to let you down. And then I realized that, oh, none of us have our shit together. It's fine. We should probably just date. You know, the the romance of, of being 16. But I, I kind of feel like that's a lot of the thesis of this movie. When I think of a movie as far as being a cut above the rest, when filmmakers can sort of talk about and show you specifically these kinds of relationships that have, like, meaningful impact and also these stories that tell, like, a pretty significant, you know, sort of story... I'm really impressed by that. For Virgin Suicides, like, if I would have saw Virgin Suicides in 99, and I would have saw that this was, like, Sofia Coppola's first film, mm-hmm. that is a director, like, you will put stock into. I would have said, you know, yeah. she's, she's going to revolutionize the way we tell stories, like, as far as from, like, a woman's perspective, mm-hmm. which at that point, like, it's not, there's only real like a handful of like really great projects to kind of do that to tell stories from perspective of young women. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I would have saw this movie like when it came out back then, I would have been like all on board with her. If I knew if I was the same person then in 1999. Yeah. I think it's I think it's definitely of the three. It's it's a movie that now watching it for the first time like. It definitely stuck with me more than rewatching Lost Translation and rewatching Marie Antoinette. What are you doing here, honey? You're not even old enough to know how bad life gets. Obviously, Doctor. You've never been a 13-year-old girl. And I think it's... I think you even alluded to this a little earlier, but her building off the source material, this, this novel... I think it's kind of fair to question which had the better impact, the book or her vision, mm-hmm. which I think you can make the argument for either way, honestly. But I do think that if she was a director that was going to take another person's stories, but then elevate it, she's someone that you can give that responsibility to. And I don't know what happened in between, you know, the seven years it took uh, between this and Lost in Translation, why she couldn't do any other movies, I mean, Virgin Suicides, it wasn't necessarily a hit because, I mean, seeing, you know, teenagers commit suicide, not just one, but five, like, that's really hard to put on a movie poster. Um, So. Well, even if you look at the the poster, like, I've looked at a couple different ones now and also a few of the covers that they use for the book. They look like covers for Lolita. Battle Angels? No, no, Lolita. Like the oh, Vladimir Nabokov novel. Oh, oh my god. Okay. And like, it's very, it's like a little girl lying on grass and looking up and it, it <laughs> like, then it has the virgin suicide stamped on it in a very industrial looking font. 
I'm like, oof, oof. It's it's hard to digest. It's... Yeah, I feel like this movie is kind of like I'm trying to think of like a, a the right kind of kind of dynamic to describe it, where it's like it's a little bit like getting a splinter, where you get it initially and it hurts. And you're able to kind of get it out. And the process of getting it out is kind of unpleasant, but not bad. And then it's out and you can still kind of feel where it was. Yeah, you feel the wound. Like, this is a very, this is a very scab-like movie. I don't even know how I would interpret this movie if I was, like, a 14-year-old girl and I watched this movie. Like, because, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily... Well, it's not healing at all. Like, to be mm-hmm. quite frank, it's not a healing movie. It's not a movie that you go into and you leave and you're like, wow, I, I figured out something about life. It tells you about, like, isolation. It tells you about boy and girl relationships. It tells you about how we ignore girls and how yes. we don't care about their feelings. It tells you all that. But you we leave use, a movie. We, we use women for what they have and what they can do not who they are yeah like we we don't we don't value who women are and it it effectively it costs them all their lives so and this our, is a thing that i think comes up in all of her movies just saying yeah no that like that's like sad girl vibes like that's who sophia coppola is like mm-hmm. it's it's big sad girl vibes so all these women and these girls, like the the five girls and the two women in these three movies, like they're all processing depression and isolation in their own ways. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in *Virgin Suicide*, it manifests into death. In *Lost in Translation*, it it manipulates into it manifests into possibly falling in love with another married man. And um, Marie Antoinette it manifests into getting drunk and playing cards. Yeah. So it kind of it kind of breezes off into these different directions, but I think and I think that's why Coppola was was sort of drawn to the Virgin Suicide novel because I think that was that may have been her just experience growing up. Like she lived in a house with a filmmaker who probably never bothered to study her emotional outputs. Like for Coppola, for Francis Ford Coppola. He was a director that doesn't really explore women at all. Like yeah. in the in the in the, all the Godfathers, there's not much exploring women in those movies at all. In the mm-hmm. conversation, there's not that exploration either. So maybe he was a guy that like you know, as a father, we don't. I'm not saying he was a terrible father. I'm not saying he was James Woods in Virgin Suicides, but at the same time, like you can tell she was a girl who grew up and her voice was not heard. And so yeah. she is making her voice heard in these three movies. Yeah. So one of the things that my mom said today was, do you think that Sofia Coppola was a director because of who she was related to? Or do you think she really knew and, you know, wanted to and was able to direct? Ooh, that's a good and I, question. I said that I don't think that she would be able to direct stories about women the way that she could without having been a woman in a high-powered family. I don't think that she would understand that idea of, well, I wear this dress and I stand here and I, you know, move my shoulder just like this and I must say hello to this person because of the principle 
And that is what I am here for. I am the peacemaker. I am the homemaker. I am, you know, the person who who creates the love and these connections if she hadn't grown up in a well-to-do family. I mean, that's a think, real... You have real points. Keep going, keep going. I think also that she might not have that little look inside to, like, some some of those things that I think come up in a lot of her movies of, like, these ideas of traveling and isolation and separation, but still love, maybe, that would exist if that wasn't real for her in a small way, you know? I think how, involves, are, how are you a normal teenager after your sister dies? How are you a normal teenager when your dad is Francis Ford Coppola? Like, I think your mom has a real chicken in the egg type of question because all three of these movies, even though Virgin Suicide is set in Detroit, none of these movies are filmed in America. Um, so Virgin Suicide was filmed in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um Marie Antoinette was in France. Um, obviously, Lost Translation was in Tokyo. Um, maybe she's maybe she's still a woman that is. Obviously, she's a woman that feels all these emotions, but because she doesn't grow up with a director in her family, maybe she doesn't get the idea that she could direct stories of her own. Yeah. Um, if she if she's not Francis Ford Coppola's daughter, uh, and she doesn't have access to even going abroad to live in Tokyo, like on her own, maybe she doesn't have the funds to do that. Is she just a regular schmegular girl? Right. So I think have her being for uh, uh, Francis's daughter, it does give her the benefit in that. Because it and, feels like to me, she knows what not like the other girls actually is. A lot of times the idea of not like, not like other girls is, you know, oh, she drinks a vodka soda and I drink whiskey. But like it sometimes is, did you hear her sister died? She's not like everyone else. Her dad won an Oscar last night. She's not like everyone else. You know, did you hear she's from Austria? She's not like everyone else. And I think that that helps to, I don't know that she would have had that experience, you know, if she was just, you know, Sophie Jones from wherever. Yeah. So of the three movies, what is your, I know you don't like ranking movies, but I think a more appropriate question is which movie were you most impressed by? I think Marie Antoinette. Oh, Leonard. You're the best. Ooh, I would not have guessed that. Why? So to me, that movie feels like, first of all, it just feels like the culmination of The Virgin Suicides and Lost in Translation. Like, I feel like she she learned a lot from those movies. And that kind of culminated in the beautiful stillness that exists in Marie Antoinette, while also that bustling kind of young feminine energy that is also very practiced. I also just feel like, I I found myself aesthetically kind of 
swept up about that movie. I took the least notes on that movie because I didn't want to look down from the screen. And beyond that, I I would on uh, on Letterboxd, uh, I have The Virgin Suicides and Marie Antoinette rated the same. They're both four. And from you, you just feel that Lost in Translation is just sort of lacking. It's kind of, from your perspective, is it lacking? Just it doesn't grab you, I guess. It doesn't. I think more accurately, I would say that it has pacing problems in a way that makes it hard for me to connect with past a certain level. Would I would I turn it off if it was on? No, but I don't know that I would ever seek it out again. Whereas both The Virgin Suicides and Marie Antoinette, I would I would seek out. And I I only gave uh, Lost in Translation by the way three and a half. I didn't like I don't feel like it's a, a terrible movie by any stretch of the imagination. You can have things that you sort of disagree with, but you don't necessarily dismiss the whole movie. So that's that's not necessarily anything that I would ever sort of put on you. All the fetishization of Japanese everything, the kind of bastardization of it as well. And then also coupled with a, a love story that while I understand, I never feel strongly about. It's just a lot. It's a big ask that Sofia Coppola is asking me to do. And I just, I can't quite get there. I think we kind of have like the opposite opinions because, and I think it's because I do invest heavily in the ScarJo-Bill Murray relationship. Um, but for me, like, I I would say the most movie I was impressed by was Virgin Suicides. Um, like, that is going to be a, a movie that, has splendored in my mind um i for me though i would actually say the movie i was least impressed by was marie antoinette uh just for the fact that like um like the relationship like i don't necessarily buy i love the aesthetic and i love the soundtrack of the movie i think those are the movies saving grace if this if i think if the if the aesthetics were if the aesthetics weren't what they were in the in the movie's soundtrack only sort of stuck into like classical music mm-hmm. i don't think this would be a movie i would very much like to be quite frank mm-hmm. um kirsten dunce is a good actress particularly in virgin suicides um but this this movie it's it she uses the aesthetic too much to sort of fill gaps i feel like mm-hmm. um, so for letterbox i gave marie antoinette uh, three and a half stars, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty. Sh- I gave Lost in Translation four stars, and I gave Virgin Suicides four and a four half. Four and a stars. half, yeah. Yeah. So we're really not all that far off from each other, still. No, I. Yeah, I. I think, like I said, like I think if we, if if these movies, let's say these movies came out just even a year apart, like each one came out like a year apart, like. I think she probably would have been considered like a a burgeoning director that deserved like every chance in Hollywood. But because the movies were so spread out and Marie Antoinette, like it was kind of a, it was kind of, uh, I don't think it was a failure, but it didn't do what. It didn't make money. Yeah. Because they were so spread out and because they weren't commercially successful. I think that's probably why like her career didn't, necessarily take off in the way that it probably should have um and also like i said even the chicken and egg question like it is kind of fair to question is she a good director 
if she's writing her own things from her own material or does she need the source material to build off of? Mm-hmm. Uh, because her other movies, um, I don't, I mean, I would say probably Virgin Suicides and Lost Translation without even going into depth. Like, I think those other movies are probably going to be rated higher. Oh, sorry, they're going to be rated lower than what these three movies eventually became. So, I mean, we all remember how much everyone was thoroughly indifferent on the bling ring, right? um maybe one day i'll give the bling ring a try but today is not that day (laughs) i would be interested to revisit it knowing what i know now like as a person who likes movies because i watched it the year it came out and was like that was a movie (laughs) it was a movie that came out boy oh yeah Ooh, doggy sofia coppola man She's kind of cute. She's kind of yeah, fun. Yeah, right. Also, we... Great taste this in is, music. So this is the 93rd movie we've discussed on... <laughs> these are the 90... Uh, Virgin Suicide taken to the 93rd movie we've discussed on this on this here podcast, so... Dang! We're churning them out, man. We are churning them out. Man, I was so massively disappointed when I found out she was 17. God damn! <sighs> I'm, uh, I'm debating whether or not to tell my friend who, like, we synced up our watching of of this movie so we could live text about it. And he kept being, like, ScarJo's butt. And I'm like, oh, she's a child. You know um, you know the thing? You can't tell him because he has to find out the way I found out years later. He has to find <laughs> out that way. I believe he listens to the podcast, so he'll find out soon enough. Find Cat at Kat Chinetti on Twitter, Twitch, and Instagram. Find Marcus at Show and Mad Love on Twitter and Instagram. S-H-O-I-N-M-A-D-L-O-V. Please join our Facebook group at We Should Do This Again Sometime and follow us on Twitter at Kat, K-A-T, and Mark, M-A-R-C. Read us at catseasmovies.tumblr.com and themarkrob, T-H-E-M-A-R-C, rob.wordpress.com Be sure to tip your waitress at Catherine Chidetti on Venmo. This podcast is executive produced by Kellen Conley and Eric Greenley under Hyphen Podcast Group in conjunction with It's Like a Podcast or whatever. Thanks again for listening. We should do this again sometime. <laughs>